This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, January the 5th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. A little bit of described video for you this morning as the show begins. I'm going for something of a disheveled look today. In desperate need of a haircut over here, and I could not find Ramya Emuthin's hair gel in the control room, so we're going for the wild man look today. Should also be noted I haven't shaven since Monday. I've been told that I'm channeling my inner Tom Waits this morning. Eh, you know, not so bad. Coming up on the show today, the news panel reunites Joita Gupta, Michelle McQuig, and I tackle some of the most intriguing stories of the week, starting with some survey data that shows increased burnout amongst hospital workers in Ontario. Could this be an ongoing ripple from the pandemic? Or does everyone hate their jobs? Here's a question for you. Where do you stand on executives in the charitable sectors making six-figure salaries. There's some new data that finds executives in the climate charity field are earning over $200,000 per year. And how do you feel about oaths to the monarch? All hail the king. A member of parliament has introduced a private member's bill that would eliminate mandatory oaths to the king. So lots of interesting stuff coming your way on the news panel, but the show begins with the top story of the day. A little bit of economic data that just got released. Stats Canada has put out their December jobs data this morning. The unemployment rate is exactly the same as November of 2023, 5.8%. And the raw number of jobs lost or jobs created is basically flat, dead even. Now, I shared some findings about the Canadian economic outlook yesterday. Well, the United Nations has put out their 2024 global economic outlook. Charles de Ledesma has more. The annual forecast highlights challenges from escalating conflicts, sluggish global trade, persistently high interest rates and increasing climate disaster, projecting that global economic growth would slow to 2.4% this year from an estimated 2.7% in 2023, which exceeds some experts' expectations. The UN forecast is lower than those of the International Monetary Fund in October and the Organisation for Economic Economic Cooperation and Development in late November. I'm Charles Deladesma. And coming back to Canada, some details are emerging about a federal inquiry into foreign interference. Lisa Laporte has the story. In a public notice, the inquiry says the five days of hearings set to start on January 29th 
will focus on national security and confidentiality of information. It says they will help to set the stage for the next public hearings likely to take place at the end of March. Those hearings are expected to delve into allegations of foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections with a report on those matters due May 3rd. After the first report, the inquiry will focus on policy issues, looking at the ability of the government to detect, deter and counter foreign interference targeting Canada's democratic processes. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Over to health care, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians says it's concerned about comments made by the Quebec government in December asking people to stay away from emergency rooms. Ottawa emergency doctor Michael Herman has a message for patients. If you're worried that you're having an emergency, come to the emergency department. You know, in spite of the high volumes, in spite of the time crunch there, you know, we're here to help people. So if you have any concerns or you're worried, our doors are open. We're here to help. That's really the, the most important thing. Dr. Herman discusses how backlogs in the system pile up. But when you have patients who are admitted to the hospital waiting 24, 48, sometimes 72 hours to get a bed on the ward, that in turn occupies space that can't be used to see the next emergency patient. Quebec's ERs have been operating at over 100% capacity since November. And finally, something to fuel your nightmares. Australia is home to the most venomous spider in the world. While well, the largest male of that species has been found, Ed Donahue spins up the story. The deadly Sydney funnel-web spider is dubbed Hercules and has fangs that can pierce a human fingernail. Emma Tenney with the Australia Reptile Park says it was found on the country's central coast. Male fem- um, funnel webs are significantly smaller than females. So I actually thought it was a female. He was handed in by public donation. The spider measures a little over three inches from foot to foot. Tenney tells AUBC these spiders are deadly, but they aren't around very long. Once they reach maturity, their natural lifespan's only around one year. So we need to um, constantly have them handed in by the general public um, because we need them for our life-saving antivenom program. The plan is to get lots of venom out of this spider. Since the inception of a program in 1981, no one has died in Australia from a funnel-web spider bite. I'm Ed Donahue. I don't care if no one has not died since 1981 in Australia. Laura Bain, Elizabeth Moeller, this is not the daily poll question, but I want to bring you in on this because there's a disability lens that can be applied to insect stories. Elizabeth, stories like this are precisely why I don't go to Australia. The most venomous spider in the world that I will not see coming for me in the shower is a problem. It's the same reason why I don't go to Costa Rica or El Salvador because of scorpions. Elizabeth, as a person who has a disability who's legally blind, I have to be very concerned where I go because of poisonous deadly things. Absolutely. When I travel, I'm always very careful not to wear um, bare feet when I'm walking around, especially if it's a a resort. And certainly if I'm on a beach or swimming, I try to do that with somebody sighted. I'm more of a pool person for this exact reason, Dave. (laughs) I don't want critters, creepies, crawlies, or anything in the ocean when I'm swimming. I don't even want seaweed. So I, you can find me by the pool, not in the ocean. And I always actually try to make sure that I have a towel that I'm sitting down on so that a little critter crawly doesn't crawl onto me. So, 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 Laura, Elizabeth has mitigation. I'm just outright avoiding regions where there's poisonous <laughs> things, but Elizabeth's got mitigation plans. 
I guess I'm just a throw caution to the wind kind of person. I, I do have a theory that this is why I have such a phobia of mice is that kind of hearing them, but not seeing oh. them. But it is true as well when it comes to insects that I do get like extra apprehensive just because I know I won't be able to see them. But I don't think it would stop me from going somewhere. And I'm not really a pool person. I'm more of an ocean person, but I like to stay pretty shallow and just sort of, um, you know, I do definitely... Uh, you know, somewhere where there were uh, critters, I would be asking the person with me to please keep an eye out and possibly just like frequently reminding them. You know, they have been finding more great white sharks off the coast of uh, Nova Scotia. So just be careful out I'm there, well Laura. I'm well aware. Be, yeah, be careful out there, Laura. That's a, The ocean's a whole new beast on this front. Uh, by the way, before someone starts yelling at their uh, radio or television this morning, I'm well aware that they have found black widow spiders in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm well aware of rattlesnakes uh, in Ontario, as well as the interior mainland of British Columbia. Believe me, I know. I'm on top of these things. All of them. Okay, let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, had a little bit of fun. Asked you, what's your favorite low-cost, easy-to-make sandwich? And of course, I encouraged you to write in if your favorite wasn't listed. Ooh, uh, can someone read the numbers for me? They're not uh, posted in my script here. Just uh, one at a time. Whoever can read those in my ear for me. 53% for peanut butter. 33% for cheese, 0% for cucumber. None of you guys like your finger sandwiches. And 14% for butter. Thank you, Eliza, for helping me out there in my ear. Or was that Irene? I don't know if it was Irene or Eliza. I'll, I'll, I will say thank you to both of you. And we also had some comments here at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Kendall writes in, toasted open-faced butter sandwich. Leona writes in, cheese, but grilled cheese. Mm. Andrea writes in, Peanut butter or egg salad? I like that answer, although egg salad, that takes a little bit of time to make. You gotta prep that, you gotta prep that hard boiled egg. And Lori votes for cheese and honey, a combination I had not considered, but would definitely try if given the opportunity. Today's daily poll, it's all about your shopping habits. It comes from my own autobiographical experience. Before I tell you the story, I'll ask you the question. What type of product do you refuse to buy online? And as always, please write in if you have other options to suggest. What I've got here are furniture, large electronics, expensive clothes, or I only shop in person. I know there's some of you out there who only try to shop in person. That's how you support local businesses. Elizabeth, this does come from a story of my own meandering personal experience. I uh, need to buy some new bedroom furniture because the bureau that I've been using or the uh, dresser that I've been using is over 65 years old and is literally wow. falling apart. So it's time to get a new one. <laughs> but I could not bring myself to buy something online. I could not bring myself to buy the dresser online until I went to the store into the showroom and touched it and slid the drawers for myself. I wanted to feel how slidey the drawers were. The great irony being, I still did not actually buy the item in store. I just touched it in store and then went home and bought it online. Yeah, I would have to agree with you that for sure, furniture is a really tricky one, especially for those of us in apartment living where things are very small. Um, I, I would definitely say furniture is up there for me and clothing. I'm not a big clothes shopper online. I think it's the pictures, right? I can't really see what's what. Uh, I can't really, sometimes the pictures aren't describing the color or the, the texture. Um, sometimes it'll say it's one size online, but clothing stores are funny with sizes, oh, yeah. we know, oh, yeah. right? So it's like, 
is that really small or is that actually small in your store? But in the rest of the world, it's something else. So yeah. <laughs> not all not all three XL shirts are created equal. I know this from personal exactly. experience. Exactly. <laughs> and not uh, all, yeah, yeah. So well, I would say those two. Yeah. Laura, I think I think maybe the commonality for me and Elizabeth here is sort of feel, touch. You gotta touch something before you buy it. You know, how could you buy a sofa until you sit in the sofa? Yeah, you know, well, I'll say that the the one that came to mind for me that I was going to write in here is shoes, Ooh, um, because I find it difficult, like even in store in the best of circumstances, I find it really difficult to tell if shoes fit. So definitely picking them out online is a real gamble. But I do shop a lot online. I feel like I was a bit of a late adopter for online shopping, shopping but, you know, given that it's challenging for me to go out and shop in person and I can't drive myself and that I sort of need help going around the store. Online shopping has made things a lot easier, but it sort of comes down to ease of shipping and ease of return. So I bought a bed online recently, but they had a really good return policy. Mm -hmm. The shipping was really easy. They brought it right to my apartment door. They even brought it inside my apartment door. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I agree with you that um, there's some things it is challenging if you can't uh, feel them, at least with the bed, there were review videos and things like that I could <laughs> yeah. watch and a dresser. I would have also been curious how slidey are the drawers. Yeah, slide of drawer matters, slide of drawer matters. Thank you both for your input on this one. I want to hear from you out there. I pointed at the camera there. You out there in listener land in the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook or chime in via email feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call. 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, there's some new survey data that shows increased burnout amongst hospital workers in Ontario. What do you think? Could that be a ripple from the pandemic or does everyone just dislike their jobs? Joita Gupta, Michelle and I tackle the story as part of the news panel. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. on a Friday. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's assemble the first news panel of the year. I love it with a little bit of funk and a little bit of doo-dapping and dancing and shoulder shaking this morning. You can't have a panel without panelists. So let's say hello and good morning to Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hi, Dave. Good morning. And hello to Michelle. Hello, Dave, and hello, everybody. All right, let's get right into it. Three stories on deck today, beginning in Ontario. This is an Ontario story, but it has big-time national implications. Some Ontario hospital workers are deeply dissatisfied with their jobs and working conditions. A survey of 750 workers showed that 41% dread coming to work. A similar number are thinking about leaving the profession entirely. Registered practical nurse Dave Virch describes the experience of some employees. Um, I've heard cases where uh, a nurse or a RPN or a healthcare worker will pull into a parking lot and they'll count the number of cars and they know that there's not enough people 
that are going to be there to fill that shift. So they know already before they even get into the building that they're going to be working short. And it, it, it's like climbing a mountain every day. Uh, uh, you reach a breaking point, and I think that's what's happening to a lot of our healthcare workers right now. The Ontario Council of Hospital Unions is calling on the government to bring in minimum staff to patient ratios and a multi-billion dollar funding injection. Secretary Treasurer Sharon Richer says staffing issues are already impacting patient care. Um, they're very upset. They know that th that they're stretched so thin that, you know, patient care is being, you know, put to the wayside. And this is very upsetting to them. The provincial government has introduced policies to bring in more workers. Other provincial health care systems are dealing with capacity and burnout issues too. Quebec's emergency departments have mostly been operating at over 100% capacity since November. So here's where I want to start the conversation. I want to start the conversation with the raw number, Joita. 41% seems like a really big number. Mm -hmm. I'm forcing you into a little bit of speculation here, though. How much do you think that really differs from workers in any other sector or profession? Well, I mean, if you look at another survey, I, had a, I took a peek at it yesterday. It says that um, this was a global survey. It says that out worldwide... In the world's full-time worker population, about eighty-five percent dislike their jobs oh and gosh. feel disengaged from their from their jobs. So, I mean, compared to that, forty-one percent <laughs> seems not so bad. With that said, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. The two surveys are yes. far from identical. I do recognize that, um, but I think there is an element of you know people can I think shrug it off to an extent and say, well. You, you see, nobody really likes their jobs. Uh, with that said, with that said, I think there are some peculiarities here. Forty-one percent, uh, and some of the anecdotal d data that we're hearing, some of like you know, we heard in the clip, uh, people driving into the parking lot, realizing based on the number of cars that there just aren't enough people, and feeling this overwhelming um, fatigue even as before they walk in the door, to, you know, to start their shift. And then you have other stories of people crying on lunch breaks, crying mm. before, during, mm. and after their shifts. You're really taking a toll on the mental health of frontline staff. And the other piece around this that I don't think is getting enough attention uh, is that a lot of the, the nursing staff in particular uh, comprises women and people of color. And so when you think about the impact of racism and sexism coupled with the realities of working in a sector that is, and I think we've talked about this in some detail, uh, acutely uh, and chronically short-staffed, and they've had the impact of the pandemic. So I think the 41% number is significant because of what it's telling us about people's lived reality and what it's telling us about the impact on patient care. And the fact that uh, not only are they struggling to keep uh, people engaged with their jobs, but recruitment is also proving to be a bit of a challenge because there's yeah. no one stepping in to fill the breach. So the 41% number is significant uh, given the context. Yeah, Michelle, I I'm definitely willing to argue with my own premise here, even though I think it probably is more broadly reflected across mm -hmm. job sectors, job dissatisfaction. The important thing here is that healthcare is a very, very, very critical job. And this is one where you do not want nearly half the workforce being unhappy with their job conditions. Mm -hmm. 
completely agree. And I would also argue a couple of things. A is that there's a significant distinction between disliking your job and dreading your job. Dread is really strong. The anecdotes we're hearing absolutely support that this is taking a huge toll on, on all of these healthcare workers. The other thing, too, is that they're working in an absolutely vital field with maximum pressure. Um, you, you know, if, you, if you're filing things or doing a, a a job that doesn't actually have life or death circumstances. I'm sure like, being a bro- like, be, like being a broadcaster. <laughs> exactly. Or, or an editor. Yeah. yeah. yeah all these things. Like, like that would significantly diminish the, the amount of real pressure these guys are facing. So I feel like it is a bit disingenuous to com- compare most of our jobs to the life and death stakes that, that healthcare workers are facing. And 41% of dread is, is really striking to me. Um, I do quibble a little bit with the sample size of that survey. Yeah, 750 small. is small. not a yeah. lot, um, but I, I, I don't doubt its findings. And I suspect that would be borne out if it was sampled more widely. Um, and where I, where I see the most value in it is in a sign of future attrition and, and f- focus for recruitment. If you know that 41% of your workforce or can can imply that 41% of your workforce hate their job and dread coming into work, you just know the majority of those people are probably looking to either leave jobs or leave mm. the industry altogether. So that's a sign of what we alluded to earlier, that recruitment efforts really need to be front and center right now. Yeah, Joita, that that leads into this next thought, which there's a bit of a chicken and eggness to what I'm about to say, because a lot of provinces are rolling out policies to try and beef up their staffing, attracting foreign workers, mm-hmm. creating streamlined certification processes, moving to team-based health models. This is a very Captain Obvious question, Joita, but does any of that really matter if the working conditions stink? But knowing that I'm chicken and egg in this, bringing in more people should improve the working conditions. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to say whether which comes, you know, which one you put before the others. I think that all of these things work together, whether it's, uh, you know, bringing in more staff, whether it's improving conditions. I even thought about maybe the value of uh, of having nurses in particular work shorter shifts. I mean, they work 12 hours yeah, uh, yeah. A, a day, which yeah. is a long shift. Uh, and I wonder if there would be some value in even thinking about the conventional eight hour shift and having three shifts of nurses in a day. No, I'm not sure what, why that isn't done more widely. Maybe it's a patient care question. Maybe it just creates a lot of, maybe it creates a large administrative burden. Like I don't have the inside track on that one. I couldn't say. Uh, I think it's it's worth remembering that uh, if you look at the example in BC where they have uh, brought in some legislation around minimum patient and staff ratios, it's still early days, so we don't know how successful they'll mm-hmm. be. But mm-hmm. I think it is very important to start targeting the recruitment side of the equation, whether it's subsidizing nursing programs or other um, you know, other forms of education to try and incentivize <clears throat> people working in these professions, uh, whether it is looking at compensation, although Ontario nurses are amongst some of the better paid in the country, but it's not just about compensation. Maybe it's also about uh, acknowledging the human cost of working in these high-stress environments and the vital role of the job and expanding access to psychosocial supports, regular support with a counselor or a therapist, somebody who they can actually someone who can actually step in and, and, and look at the mental health of, 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 of course, of course, there's also, there's also a big shortage in that field. Uh, there's too, also right? a big shortage <laughs> well, that's that. it. That's yes. what I was. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, I mean, there, there, there are these, there are um, ideas that can be floated, but it's a tricky one to sort out because there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that you can actually point to and say, well, do this. And that'll fix your problems. I think uh, injecting funding into uh, the healthcare se- se- uh, sector is, a long overdue and now that there's finally some announcements around funding it's still going to be 
a couple of years before we see any impact from that. There are um, inroads least. being made to allow for the um, for foreign credentials to be recognized more quickly. But again, it'll be some time before we can see any impact from that. So the part of what's making this so difficult for healthcare workers is because in the in the near future, it doesn't look like things are getting any better, and that can be very disheartening as well. Yeah, Michelle, I, I, I'm, I'm going to circle back to this idea of retention because you alluded to it as well. If the working conditions aren't there, yes, it's wonderful from a raw number perspective to try and bring more people in. But if you're churning nearly half your workforce out on a regular basis, it really doesn't matter how many people you're bringing in. Absolutely. And there's so many other factors here, too. Not all people or, or all bodies are created equal in that sense. If you're replacing seasoned people who are accustomed to a, a hospital's ways and then bringing in a flood of new people that don't have that same good degree of knowledge of the system or whatnot, that's going to take time, like Joita said, to get everyone up and running. So it's not like you're going to instantly have people who are ready to ready to roll at previous capacity levels right out of the gate. Um, so that that's a concern, uh, contributing to the, the natural time aspect of just having these programs established and rolled out in the first place. But the other thing to do with conditions, I find, is it would be, I would, I suspect it would be incredible incredibly disheartening to be one piece of a system that's encountering strain everywhere. So even if you do manage to improve working conditions in terms of numbers or shift lengths, I like that thought from Joita, um, any of those things, if you address those, but you're still seeing your patients fall through the cracks elsewhere in the system, that I suspect will be deeply demoralizing and not do a lot to help. So nurses are just one piece of this broader puzzle. And I think we're seeing these sorts of concerns playing out all across the healthcare yeah. systems and not just not just confined to nurses. So I, I think that would have to be addressed as well in order to make you a lot of nurses enter the profession because they want to feel like they're making a difference. And if their patients are not experiencing that difference, I suspect that would erode your sense of purpose. Michelle, you and I were in the time machine yesterday reflecting on how fast time passes. Would you guys believe that we're approaching the four-year anniversary of the pandemic starting, of the official global pandemic starting? And I, don't mean, and I don't mean to harp on these things. I don't mean to make every conversation a pandemic conversation. But I think you cannot separate what's going on in the healthcare industry today from what happened during the course of the last four years, particularly some of the massive spikes during the pandemic. And Michelle, I really yeah. feel like what's going on here is a ripple effect from the pandemic, especially when a lot of healthcare workers were begging provincial governments to do more in terms of uh, health and safety, public health perspectives. I'd even take it a step further, to be honest with you, and argue that this is a uh, this predates the pandemic. A lot mm, of these mm -hmm. warnings that we've been hearing were coming out long before the pandemic was on the radar. The pandemic massively exacerbated all of those existing tensions. And that's what I think is coming to a boil. In a way, I think the, the pandemic, excuse me, uh, both exacerbated and accelerated the current predicament that we're in. Um, just because the, the strain was so significant, and I don't think the system has fully recovered. So I, I wouldn't actually pin this on the pandemic. I, I think the, this is a symptom of things that started to manifest long before that. Yeah, Juita, I think that's a fair observation from Michelle, that perhaps the pandemic made it a more acute ripple effect, but the waves had already started well before March of 2020. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, for sure. I mean, our healthcare system was in crisis long before the pandemic. Um, we, we were hearing stories about long wait times and people, you know, waiting in corridors, waiting to see a doctor in emergency rooms and all oh, kinds yeah. of other problems and shortages of doctors and nurses. This is all pre-March 2020. And the pandemic mm. hits like a bolt out of the blue. And suddenly it's just 
gotten that much worse. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the other piece around this that's interesting is also uh, one of the things the pandemic did is really sort of changed broad-based thinking about work. Mm -hmm. uh, people yes. kind of thought yes. that, you know, yeah. uh, before the pandemic, we all had to put our nose to the grindstone and, and you know, like it or not, you have, to, you have to suffer at your jobs. And, you know, now with work from home options and people having far more in-depth conversations about work-life balance, I think maybe it's taken the attraction away from nursing. People are saying, well, are there ways that I can help people that doesn't necessitate going into a hospital? I mean, there are people who, you know, you, you, let's face facts, you have some telehealth options and you have some virtual health, but primarily nursing is still done in person in hospitals and clinics and other places. And people are saying, is this really the career mm, path I want mm -hmm, to follow? Mm -hmm, I could be yeah. doing something else. I mean, you could even be a radio broadcaster and work from home, frankly, nowadays with the way things <laughs> well, are. Well, not all of us. <laughs> so, so, so I think that's just, it's not being talked about as much, but I think Part of the dissatisfaction with the job, I, I would say 90% of it is just the realities on the ground. But I think 10% yeah. of it is also how people's perceptions of what work should actually be like, having undergone a seismic change because of the pandemic. Yeah, Michelle, uh, we need to put a bow on this because we're, as always, running over time. That, that's just how, that's just how this, uh, this panel seems to go yeah. because it's we like chatting. We yeah. But when we're talking about important things, I think it's always worth hunkering down and taking that extra minute. This, to me, actually strikes me as a bit of a follow-up of a conversation that you and I had about a significant mental health crisis going on in the veterinary industry. Uh, we talked about that on the show, you and I yes. together, a couple of that's months right. ago. And I and one of the things that I said to you in that conversation is I think people who got put on the front line during the pandemic are still really feeling it, right? A lot of people were able to retreat and go home, but people like nurses and doctors and retail employees yes. and a bunch of yep. other pe veterinarians, people who were put in those, quote, uh, uh, essential, service essential services. Thank you, Michelle. See, yeah. I'm already forgetting my pandemic terminology, but I do think... Oh, it's burned I into my brain for life. <laughs> <laughs> when I do think, when I do talk about a ripple effect, I think that goes back to my idea of sort of broad-based dissatisfaction across work, and I wonder how many essential workers or frontline workers, teachers as well, I wonder how many are still feeling mm -hmm. what it was in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Mm -hmm. I think you're onto something for sure. And I think Joita's is right too, to talk about the, the way work is viewed. These people didn't get to have the benefit of those same conversations that a lot of us were able to have in 2020 when we pivoted to remote work. Um, so yeah, I think this is, this is bearing out that way for sure. The, yeah, you know what? I'll leave it there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think that's just a good spot to leave it. But but this is a yeah. really important conversation, and I, I know I say this a lot at the end of these segments. Healthcare is something that the three of us are probably going to tackle a bunch this year because uh, there there are a lot of stories going on in different provinces that are going to be worth some analysis here. So thank you both for starting the conversation on healthcare that will continue throughout the year. But coming up next. Switching to the charitable sector, there's some new data that finds executives in the charitable field, specifically climate-related charities, are earning over $200,000 per year. And it begs the question, how do you feel about CEOs of charities making six-figure salaries? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Judah Gupta. Let's address the next topic. The CEOs of climate-related charities are making some real green. <laughs> wah, Canada, wah, wah. <laughs> Canada Revenue Agency data shows that 17 executives of climate charities earned over $200,000 per year. And a big shout out to the Canadian press for crunching that data. Mm-hmm. You'll find some recognizable organizations at the top of the list. Ducks Unlimited Canada, the David Suzuki Foundation, World Wildlife Fund Canada, and Nature United. Just a bit of counterbalance before the bigger conversation 864 charities were examined, and 59% of those charities rely solely on volunteers, and 14% have employees that make no more than $40,000 a year. Michelle, you brought this one to the table. I did want to offer that last little bit of context, just to sort of explain the sample and sort of talk about maybe the narrative that gets built around this, understanding that nearly 90% of charities in this sector are not paying six-figure salaries to their executives. <laughs> yeah, that, that is extremely fair. That That's Said, I do find this very interesting, and you know, I I'll echo your praise from my colleague Pierre said down no, great job with with this one because it's it's quite interesting to see how it goes, and to see that it's all concentrated in this in or mostly concentrated in this one sector too. Uh, I find that kind of interesting, but yeah, th- th- this this raises all kinds of questions to me about our expectations around charities, around the, the, the we hear lots of discussion around the disparity between CEO pay and employee pay in mm-hmm, the business world. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a thread we to just start exploring on the charity side. We don't have the data, to be fair, on on, on pay, but we do know that the pro- not-for-profit world is not exactly lucrative for those who choose to work in it by and large. Uh, so I think that's an aspect to consider, but also just it, conversations around compensation are interesting and raise questions about the value of people's work. So I suspect there is a knee-jerk response of oh this, these these numbers are ridiculous and in some cases perhaps they really are but there is there are discussions to be had around what is of value and how to compensate people adequately for necessary skills and time so there's there's a lot here and i thought this would be just a a, a good way to to start exploring some of it. Yeah, Juliet, I've got a few more numbers to throw around here, but but I want to give you the first opportunity to uh, sort of react to the story more generally and talk about the idea broadly of how you feel about executives in the charitable sector. Again, really want to underline this, the charitable sector making six-figure salaries. Well, honestly, uh, my first reaction was envy. I wish I was making something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, my God. But all jokes Truth. aside, uh, I, I, I think... Um, it's really worthwhile to put the number into context. We are really talking about a minority, a minority of charities and even a minority of executives within charities. It is very much in the confines of the environmental movement where we're seeing these exorbitant salaries, even for CEOs and uh, you know the top level management. I, I think what makes this whole conversation interesting is because when we think about charities, we have very specific expectations of of charities. Um, I think a lot of charities, uh, even if they don't, you know, even if they don't rely on donations as their primary source of funding, there's still a, a perception that charities are relying on donations in large part to do something that is conceived of uh, as a public good or, you know, Many are not, and being nonprofits at that, uh, I think there's a, a degree of accountability that creeps in where people are asking uh, rightly, 
is my donation going towards the cause yes. or is it going yes. to support yes. someone's exorbitant inflated salary or fundraising effort? So that is a whole other layer that adds to this conversation. I think what's interesting for me in this whole story and this whole conversation is how the charitable sector has really been corporatized where there's a perception that in order to attract good top level managers yes yes uh, yeah. you have to have these exorbitant pay packages without which you will why well, i don't know what lose them to the private sector and i think that shows a can deep I build on? Mis hmm? to build on that too the, the flip side is people are expected the people who choose to work in non-executive positions are exposed to be driven by passion alone and be content yeah. to go without living salaries yeah, that's well. That's th the that other side of it. Yeah, exactly. People are driven up, are supposed to be passion driven, and as you heard, fourteen percent of people who work in charities make under forty thousand dollars a year, which is, frankly, like peanuts, especially if you live in a place yeah. like Toronto, or Vancouver. It's nothing. Uh, but I think the the bigger piece here is, you know, there's this widening wage gap between the rank and file that does a lot of the grunt work and these exorbitant executive salaries. And I think it might be worthwhile, as you say, Michelle, to look at the charitable sector and ask to what extent that wage gap has widened in the last couple of years uh, and why that might be the case that it has gotten bigger as, as I suspect is the case. Here's once again where I shout out the work of people who do incredible number crunching, not just Michelle's colleagues at the Canadian Press, but there's an organization called Charity Intelligence Canada that just does amazing work on this file, trying to figure out the impact of your donated dollar to different charities and does a lot of work of breaking down uh, what executives are getting paid in different charities. And let's just say there's a lot of, I'm not gonna name the organizations, but I'll allow you to do this research on your own with Charity Intelligence Canada, there's a lot of people who work in the disability sector who are also making uh, massive, massive salaries. And then we'll turn around and talk about, oh, the poverty of disabled people. So uh, yeah, just keep that in mind a little bit too. So then, Michelle, let, you, get, you, you mentioned the expression knee-jerk. And certainly my knee-jerk reaction and my general feeling is if you want to work in the charitable sector, you want to work in the not-for-profit sector, you should not expect massive salaries, like those things should not go hand in yeah. hand, especially if a ton of charities or if that charity's core purpose relies on volunteers, right? That, that that just doesn't equate to me. I'm not comfortable with it. I don't like it. But I do also understand the notion of paying people living wages. And mm -hmm. 250 grand is a ton of money, but like a six-figure salary in a city like Toronto or Vancouver, like if someone was around the $100,000 mark, like it, it doesn't go as far as it used to, right? Like yeah, I, I, I think when yeah. we think about things no, like this, the, the sunshine list or, or those kinds of what are people in the public sector making, like you, you have to you have to at least put these things into the context of what inflation is and what cost of living is. But here's where I bring in a little bit a more counterbalance, Michelle, I promised you more statistics. The Center for Policy Alternatives put out some numbers this week about CEOs in the private sector. The top 100 CEOs in Canada earned on average $14.9 million in 2022. Yeah. Uh, the, the person who runs Restaurant Brands International, so I think Tim Hortons, Popeyes, uh, Burger King, got over $100 million in compensation, by the way, mostly in stock options, which means you can't tax it. So that's a whole other thing that keeps me awake at night. Um, but that's it, Michelle. When I think about the knee-jerk reaction, I don't like the idea of executives and charities making six figures. But what really keeps me awake at night and where I really get knee-jerky is when I see $15 million on average of, like, basically untaxable income going to CEOs in the private sector. Like, that's what keeps me up at night, not how that's, charities are, are getting paid. That is more than fair. And, yeah, look, 
all of this does really go to show that the not-for-profit sector really is not, it, it still is not a lucrative one. If, we're, if, we're, if, those, if that's our point of comparison, then a CEO taking home 250 grand compared to his compatriot taking home 14 million probably does feel like that underpaid worker who, who's taking home minimum wage at best. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, the other question that this raises for me is the role that charities play in our society. Yeah. A lot of the times, charities are, are are stepping in to plug holes in the social safety mm-hmm. net, to do the kind of advocacy work that does that, that often drives government policy. They do play a really important role, and I think discussing discussing compensation without accounting for that aspect of what charities do um, would be a bit disingenuous too. So it's it is a really complicated conversation for all the reasons you talked about comparisons of the private sector, but also. Just the function that charities perform in the society, there can be a tendency to over rely on them, so they can get extremely undertaxed even with these limited resources. Like it, it's it's not as simple an issue as one's knee jerk reaction, including my own, I think, would have us believe. Uh, Joita, Michelle brings in the notion of expectations mm-hmm. there, and that's something that's come up, especially when we've been talking about food security in the last year, mm-hmm. where food banks have been relied upon to solve food insecurity rather than the actual societal issue being fixed. And I think Michelle maybe is onto something there about the expectation and the pressure mm-hmm. that we as a society, uh, socially, have put on charities to now what used to be a stopgap is now the only thing hold, holding some some societal structure together. Yeah, I mean, the role that charities play is twofold. Um, There's a service component, as you rightly point out, when it comes to things like food banks or um, uh, supports around housing or even environmentally, picking up the slack and doing a lot of the work that by all rights should be done by the government. And you have the nonprofit industrial complex stepping in where the government is not filling in on a permanent or semi-permanent basis those things that the government should by all rights be taking stock of, whether it's, you know, food security issues, whether it's housing issues, whether it's environmental issues. I mean, it, it it's run it, it across the board. You talked about people with disabilities. A lot of the services that are provided to people with disabilities come via the um the nonprofit sector. Yeah, and yeah. there is an, a very compelling yeah, very argument so. to be made that 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 those things should actually be provided by the government or by the state. Yep. So you know, when you think about that, it's uh, it's important to think. So that's one part of the of the conversation. But the other part, of course, is that many charities do have, uh, as part of their mission and mandate, an advocacy function and a lobbying function. And you see a lot of that when it comes to environmental groups lobbying around the climate, lobbying around preservation of of you know our natural resources and forestry and what have you. I mean, and 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 so when you think about the dual role that non that nonprofits and charities play, it does bring this question of compensation for CEOs into relief. Uh, you know, should people who provide vital services uh, be compensated in a in a in an appropriate fashion? Absolutely, and I would argue that goes across the board. Yeah. Um, and make my earlier point about looking at the wage gap and the disparity between the rank and file and the CEO salaries that we talked about. Uh, but at the same time, it does become a little more complicated when you think about the advocacy function of many of these charities, and that yeah. it does, I think, compel us to ask more critical questions about some of these salaries. I mean, definitely. I hate to say, but I can make justification, I can, uh, you know, provide justifications for why, say, the premier of a province that talk about Doug Ford and Francois Legault both make over $200,000 annually. I can see a justification for that as a way to prevent corruption, same with judges, same with police officers. You pay them large salaries in the hopes that they don't take bribes. 
Um, and you have to really wonder what is the incentive to stack the deck like this and pay exorbitant salaries, $250,000 for some people working in in nonprofit sectors. What is actually being accomplished other than sort of feeding into this corporate notion that the more you pay, the better talent you'll attract? Unless it's me, of course, because then you'll attract amazing talent. Uh, okay, one last thread to pull on here, and, and we need to be quick on this, guys. Got to be quick on this. But there, you guys both mentioned government as part of this, whether government should be stepping in to fund some of these societal ills. But what happens is the government ends up funding a lot of charities. And once again, I will pop into the time machine and remind you of a little charity named We that almost got like millions and millions and millions of government funding and a huge scandal broke out. And I think about this, Michelle, I think about this question. How should executive salaries impact whether a government offers funding to a charity? And I'll answer my own question before I even give you a shot. It should matter a ton. The government should not be paying these executive salaries of charities. Like governments, when they're giving money to charities, should pretty much solely be giving money to charities that are volunteer driven. Or strictly for programs. Strictly for program mm -hmm. delivery. Yeah, yeah, that would I, I would I think a lot of people would probably be happy to get on side with that. The, the the political optics, especially when you consider the advocacy function that Joita so rightly raised, it gets really really complicated at that point. So yes, I think that would be fair thing. The other aspect, and it's this is too arcane and 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 complex to really get into now, but would be to just restructure or, or revisit how governments allocate funds in general and and you know who qualifies for charitable status uh how funds flow there's there's a lot of complicated mechanisms that could be looked at Joita, i put my cards on the table here uh, i get what michelle's saying but even then the the way the accounting works is oh yeah give us this money for services and then some other money sort of falls out of the service and finds its way back into the executive's pocket mm -hmm. i know i know it sounds pretty absolutist in the way that i'm phrasing it but i'd all i, I would prefer if governments are only funding volunteer driven charities and not paying the salary of an executive well i mean i think even with volunteer driven charities you still have an executive, someone who's paid, who's actually keeping the thing going. I mean, even yes. if you have a, a place that is entirely run by volunteers, there's often a component of someone doing some paid work to back up that establishment. But that's besides the point. I agree with you. I think uh, seeing salaries, uh, seeing the government primarily pay for funding is uh, primarily funding programs rather than advocacy efforts is I think what we would all be most comfortable with. But also this funding doesn't come you know, free. There are strings attached, as many charities would tell you. The moment you start taking government funding, they also do put restrictions on how much time and effort you can actually spend on advocacy work. Uh, for many organizations, I think, uh, you know, you can either spend 10% of your total budget on on advocacy and the rest of it has to go towards programs. So there is a, a relationship between the funder and those who get the funding uh, that yes, determines what true. and how much advocacy you can actually do. And then the other piece around this is, I think we also have to consider this whole conversation in terms of the total percentage of um, of a nonprofit's budget. So, I mean, if you're paying someone a $250,000 salary, but your annual budget is $10 million, you know, that's a very different conversation versus paying someone a $100,000 salary when your total budget is $300,000 in the year, right? So I think the total percentage of, 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 of your funding envelope is a really important uh, bit of information that provides some context when we have this conversation mm -hmm. about CEO salaries. Charity Intelligence Canada. 
I'm going to shout them out again. Charity Intelligence Canada. They do awesome work. And if you're ever, if you are in the market of donating money to charities, they give you a pretty good breakdown of whether your dollar is actually going to go uh, impact people's lives. Charity Intelligence Canada. That's I'll just keep reiterating that over and over and over again. Okay, let's put this one to bed. But coming up after the break, a member of Parliament has introduced a private members bill that would eliminate mandatory oaths to the king. How do you feel about that? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. News panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joyda Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic to discuss, and that is oaths to the king. New Brunswick Liberal Member of Parliament, Rene Arsenault, wants to eliminate mandatory oaths to the king. The MP introduced a private member's bill that would strip down the oath. Section 112... Oh, I should push my glasses up and put on a nerd voice. Section 128 of the Constitution demands that every newly elected or appointed parliamentarian swear that they will be faithful and bear true allegiance to the reigning monarch. There we go. Best nerd voice ever. Uh, <laughs> that stripped down oath would simply state that as a, an office holder carry out their duties in the best interest of Canada while upholding its constitution. Uh, this story got some people riled up, including Joy Gupta. What do you want to explore here? Uh, just, you know, whether it's something that even that Canadians are even really thinking about and given that we all have bigger fish to fry and some people might argue this pales in comparison to housing and healthcare and other problems, but also just thinking about uh, how this might stack up compared to the, you know, when we think about the overall pageantry associated with um, with the parliament uh, and, and what our personal views on preserving the oath or discarding it might be. Sorry, Joey, to having some technical trouble in here. My laptop battery is about to die, which would be unfortunate <laughs> to execute the show. Uh, Michelle, your reaction to this story? Um, I feel in a way like personal opinion doesn't particularly matter, not and not just because it seems to be pretty well divided down the middle in terms of Canada and Canadians themselves. So hard to gauge politically how this could land. But I feel like this is a fundamentally uh, kind of flawed premise to try and change this via a private member's bill. This is something that is baked directly into our Constitution. Uh, when Canada was formed, that made all kinds of sense, given the structure that we were trying to break away from. Um, a private member's bill, I think there, there's appetite out there without question for that kind of thing. We've seen pushback against oaths to the king, especially since the queen died a couple of years ago. But a private member's bill is slapping a bandaid on something and, and de detangling Canada from the monarchy will involve a huge complex, fundamental revisit of the Constitution, and I don't think a private member's bill is, is the way to tackle this sort of thing. Don't make me put on my nerd voice again, because I'll do it. Uh, Joita, I, I, I can't say that I've got particularly strong feelings about the story specifically, but it does fit into something broader that I feel about halls of government and parliament, and that's the bunch of nonsensical pomp and circumstance and shenanigans that are done all the time in halls of government. New shoes on budget 
midday, dragging the Speaker of the House to his chair in like total performative nonsense. Like I, I, I get how this falls into the Constitution and why and why that's important and why this is a conversation worth having in earnest. But I'm also just naturally an absurdist, and I think I think there's a lot of performative garbage that we do in the halls of Parliament that distract from actually doing meaningful work that serves Canadians. It adds a bit of character to the, to the proceedings. I mean, what's yeah. the harm in buying a new pair of shoes or, you know, dragging the Speaker to the House? Or, you know, in in England, they have this whole tableau where they go and knock on the door and there's oh, all yeah. kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of <laughs> yeah. traditions and, and ceremony right. that goes. It's, it's fine. It doesn't hurt anybody. I think... Um, the distinction here is uh, that it, that that swearing allegiance to the crown, the, uh, treating the monarch as the personification of the state, can be very painful for people. Yes. Uh, the person who brought forward the private members bill is Acadian, and you know they faced um, crack repression and were expelled by the crown in the 18th century. Then you've got. Uh, you know the Irish that have their grievances with the with the king. You've uh, got French Canadians who aren't thrilled about it. Yep. <laughs> Actually, you know in the in Quebec they did change the oath uh, of office. Um, I think they were just able to pass some legislation to, to make that change, and no one seems to have objected at the moment. And you know, given that we have some very thorny conversations about reconciliation and the treatment of Indigenous people in particular, uh, it doesn't seem like continuing to swear allegiance to the crown is necessarily in the same vein um, as also trying to reconcile with indigenous people. So there are all of these thorny historical factors that come into play, which makes this, you know, you can't assume office unless you take the oath, which makes this a little more problematic than just say buying a new pair of shoes. Yeah, and I acknowledge that, right? I acknowledge that sincerely and earnestly there's a conversation to be had here about Canada's relationship with the monarchy. But, Michelle, I'm inclined to sort of land where you're at. If this is really about opening up the Constitution, let's do that con like let's do that conversation and not worry about, like, optics, you know? Like, I'm going back to this yeah, thing yeah. about optics versus, like, meaningful change. Yeah, I, I was. I wanted to clarify my stance of just because a conversation is complex and difficult does not mean it's not worth having. I, I, I that's not in any way what I'm saying. I just on this particular issue, I just don't know if a private member's bill, while it might be expressing genuinely held opinions and 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 be a gateway into exploring an important issue, is not necessarily the way to address this now. That said, the spirit of what's being proposed is interesting, and the oath itself doesn't strike me as unreasonable. So it might, maybe this is a template for people who want to actually have this conversation and and go where we can't. But um, yeah, I, I just I just feel like it's a bit of a bandaid on on a solution or on a, an issue that's a lot more complicated than this. Um, but Joey is right. There are lots of very valid. Uh, an interesting grounds for, for having concerns around an oath to the monarchy. And it's definitely worth noting that Republican sentiment in Canada is alive and well. There's no question that there is a strong faction of Canadians who would like to see not just this private member's bill adopted and who are who are praising it for its potential efforts to to set yeah. this conversation in motion. But there's a, a strong, strong monarchist component here as well. And I suspect from what the government's been saying that they're prepared to push back on their own member here. There's, they, they, they haven't commented directly on the bill, but they're saying, oh, we will comment. So uh, I think that will be an interesting signal to see. Like the, e, 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 That in and of itself is a bit of a signal that they're going to have some stronger words to say than usual. So I'll be interested to see where that lands. And also, Joita, I'm totally with you. Shoes to Parliament, dragging speakers to the chair, 
it adds a bit of character to what can otherwise be uh, a relatively dry proceeding. Yeah. So it's... Until you accidentally acknowledge a Nazi in Parliament, and then the whole oh. thing falls apart. Oh. Okay, that's it. Got to go. Uh, Michelle, have a nice weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Joita, you have a nice weekend, too. Thank you. You as well. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Judah Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update and a sports chat with Brock Richardson. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv or on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Big shout out to the podcast audience. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, January the 5th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Ontario released a report on the State of Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. Oof, it's not good. <laughs> Elizabeth Moeller and Marco Pasquale will share their takeaways from the fourth review of the AODA. And how can you go about creating good habits for 2024? Shane Baker will offer up some suggestions. And AMI has a range of new programming for the winter season. Greg David has all the details. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Beginning in the prairies, Alberta Wildfire has released their 2023 data. Lori Paris takes a closer look. The province saw a total of 1,088 fires from March 1st to October 31st of last year. More than 60% of those blazes were caused by people, 35% were caused by lightning, and 4% are still under investigation. Approximately 22,000 square kilometers burned last year. That's 10 times higher than the five-year average, which is just over 2,200 square kilometers. Experts say it could be another active fire season this year if the current dry conditions continue into spring. Lori Paris, The Canadian Press. One more story. This one comes from the Atlantic region, and it's a bit of an odd one, but, but I wanted to share it with you this morning. A community in Newfoundland and Labrador has discovered that Olympic-grade beach volleyball sand... I'm going to read that for, for you one more time. Olympic-grade beach volleyball sand is rare complicated and expensive to move. The town of Paradise is hosting beach volleyball events during the 2025 Canada Games, and it's paying about $360,000 for sand from Nova Scotia that meets standards set by the International Volleyball Federation. Ed Drakic with Volleyball Canada says the sand that meets its standards must come from a natural source as grains from mechanically ground rocks are too ragged and compact too easily. He says any town organizing or hoping to host a beach volleyball tournament sanctioned by the international authority must get sand from the court tested at the Federation's lab in Huntsville, Ontario. Just a, Sometimes you pull these threads and there's a little kernel or a little grain and it makes you go, huh, I never considered whether or not there was regulation beach volleyball sand. I do enjoy me beach volleyball, though. Speaking of sports, let's bring in Brock Richardson for his chat. 
Brock, I've been watching sports for like 35 years. I never considered beach volleyball sand. I'm so glad you let me weigh in on this. I, if, if the audience could see my face when you said that, I was just like, huh? Like <laughs> beach volleyball, Olympic grade beach volleyball sand. Well, I guess, but... <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess you could sort of put this lens to it, right? You were a para-athlete. You went to the Paralympics. If you showed up and the bocce court was all weird and like jaggedy, you'd be pretty upset. Like, why is this court so bouncy today? What do you mean if I showed up, <laughs> when I showed up and it was like that? Like, there was no Paralympic grade bocce court. It was just, here it is, play on it, figure it out. Yeah, yeah. You got to know the exact bounce on the wood if you're going to play this game properly. Okay, Brock, let's uh, stop talking about surfaces and talk about World Junior Hockey. Gold medal game slated for later this afternoon, 1.30 p.m. Eastern time on TSN. It's a good one. USA and Sweden, the teams who probably played the best complete hockey since the tournament started. Yeah, absolutely. These were the two uh, favorited teams uh, going into the event. Um, U.S. is the only undefeated team in the tournament, so uh, this is a good deal. Sweden is playing at home as well. So the last time Sweden has won the tournament was in 2012. Since then, they have gotten the following stats. Zero gold medals, three silver medals, two bronze medals, and three fourth-place finishes, and two fifth-place finishes. So they've been they in the also, mix. They've been in the mix. Like, they, they're in the mix every year, even if they haven't been winning golds. Yeah, they just haven't been able to get over the hump and, and and you know, get that gold medal. I think that's going to change today. That's that's my prediction. I think they're going to use the crowd and, and feed off of that. They also had, Dave, a 54-game round-robin winning streak. So oh, before we got wow. into the knockout stages, they won 54 straight um uh, round robin games. Keep in mind that they play five round robin games every year. So, wow. Wow. you know, that's a lot of winning of hockey. That's so like 10 years. That's consistent. like 10, that's a 10 year streak of not losing any games in the round yeah. robin. That's amazing. It is. It's a lot. It's, it's very good. And a lot of people like within that 10 year streak, there was at least, you know, five or six times that I recall where they'd say, Oh, Sweden's the favorite. They're on this streak. And then once again, somebody would come in the quarterfinals, semifinals, or finals and say, nope, we got you, and we're we're going to move it forward. So today I'm really rooting for Sweden at home to win the gold medal. There's something so compelling about both these teams, Brock. I haven't crunched all the data on this, but there's at least 20 players playing in the game today that were first round draft picks. That's a stunning number, right? This is some of this is these are some of the best young hockey players, right? It's the World Juniors. Of course, these are some of the best young hockey players, but it's not just that oh, they're good and they're young. This is high pedigree stuff. This is NHL teams that have identified these are our top prospects and and every year you get that in the world juniors but there's something really special when you see all of these first round picks on both these two teams this is going to be high high level hockey this afternoon it's going to be a who scores last kind of game today you could see this game being six five by the time it's it's done i mean these teams have high high powered offenses and I think that's sort of where Canada um, fell a bit short this year. They didn't have a bunch of number one draft picks. They didn't have your Connor Bedards because 
he went on and moved on. They just didn't have it. Whereas Sweden and, and the United States have exactly what Canada didn't, and that's why they are where they are right now. Yeah, the, uh, the you and I on Wednesday were going to do this segment, and then there was this technical difficulty where we didn't get to air, and we were going to play this game, you and I, of what's your overreaction to Canada getting knocked out of the quarterfinals and not meddling this year? And the overreaction to me, Brock, is that development in Hockey Canada, Canadian hockey development of young players, is fundamentally broken. And I know that's an I know that's a big time overreaction, and it's prisoner of the moment. But you've really felt this over the course of the last. Two decades with countries like Czechia and Slovakia and Finland and Sweden and the United States all putting in totally different development models and getting huge dividends. And when Canada doesn't have a Connor McDavid on the team or a Connor Bedard on the team, they don't win. Right. So, so no. Canada is doing a great job at developing that elite, elite, elite top of the tier prospect. But they're doing a really bad job of creating second, third and fourth liners in these tournaments. And it's showing up. And I think a huge part of it, Brock, is that we as a country and as a hockey country have to stop ripping 14, 14 and 15 year olds out of their parents house, having them live in far flung places in northern Ontario or rural Atlantic Canada or rural prairies living with billet families and riding a bus everywhere, whereas the Americans have a national development program. They take their best 30 or 40 players and they send them to great schools and they have them work on their game and they do elite training. In the Finnish and Swedish model, they borrow more from the soccer model of having professional clubs, having development academies and bringing players through those academies slowly by choice. The professionalization of 14-year-olds in Canada in the long term is going to kill Canadian hockey development. That's my overreaction from Canada getting bounced in the quarterfinals. It's an overreaction, I know, but I think it needs to be stated publicly. We have to stop ripping 14-year-olds out of their parents' houses. And Dave, I'll even take this a step further, and I don't mean to bring it into my personal life, but my my nephew plays, you know, uh, in, in, in his leagues where it's, like they're wearing the suits and they're do like he's in double A hockey and he and he's ten and I and I've been to a couple of games and it's like guys these are ten year olds like yeah it's not just the fourteen fifteen sixteen year olds we're putting pressure on it's the ten year olds because the parents stand up there and they say oh my kid's gonna be the next Connor McDavid no let them have fun and I think that's where we're losing it so we're losing it even before we get into this fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen year old range too which i think is a problem <laughs> let alone the like 15 to twenty thousand dollars a year it takes to have kids playing elite level hockey as well which is a preposterous preposterous proposition hey brock you and i are out of time uh you and i can react to your buffalo bills destroying my miami dolphins on sunday nights on monday morning have a great weekend buddy Thank you. I look forward to that. Uh, Yeah, I know you do. That's Brock Richardson (laughs) at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up out of the break, 2024, new year, new you. Going to take a plan, though. So how can you go about creating good habits for 2024? Health and wellness advocate Shane Baker is going to offer some suggestions. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back, kids. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You are going to hear a lot of conversations about New Year's resolutions over the next few days. That's cool. I actually like hearing about people's goals. Your, your goals represent your priorities. That's how you get to know people. Here's the thing. You don't reach goals without good habits. Shane Baker has some goals for the new year and some new habits to go along with them. Shane is a health and wellness advocate. Hey, good morning, Shane. Good morning, Dave. So, Shane, let's dive right into this. One of the most common resolutions people have is to exercise more. I like weightlifting. I've already been to the gym a couple times this week. You're a big fan of walking. How do you plan on increasing the likelihood of you taking your daily walk? Yeah, it's great to be here with you today. I think, um, you know, I, I'm I'm not usually a New Year's resolution person. I, I often get my sort of New Year's jump on things in September, but things kind of got away from me this year. And so I'm happy that we're here to have this conversation today. And, um, you know, as you know, I, I do love walking. I find it uh, one of the most enjoyable ways that I can get some exercise and, and when I started thinking about um, making a New Year's resolution, I just wanted to make walking a daily part of my life. And, um, and one of the ways that I have been um, meeting that, that resolution this year has just been being very aware of where, where my, my energy levels are highest. And for me, I'm an early bird and um, I have most of my energy in the morning. And so I have been making a point to get out and walk early in the day before 10 o'clock. Um, and another way that I've been trying to do it too is, is making a part of my day. So the other day I needed to go to the grocery store and I said, okay, well, I'm going to go for a walk down to the, uh, Songhees walkway, which is a nice walkway along the ocean. And on my way back, I uh, will just stop at the grocery store and pick up the things that I needed to do. And so I think just really taking a look at what works for us. I think if we go into the new year's resolution, thinking that we're just going to make a change just by going like that, we, we may be disappointed with the results. So really taking a look at the planning on, mm. on what works for you and uh, and just going from there. And um, one of the other things um, that has been really helpful for me is, is I, I really paid attention to how I was feeling after those first couple days of the walks. And I really noticed a, a, a real pickup in my spirit. I felt more energy. And so on those days that I'm not too keen on going for a walk, I actually remind myself remember how you felt that day mm. you had an excellent day your anxiety levels were low the whole day and and just reminding myself some of the benefits can be a really great strategy of, of getting for that for that walk or that uh, workout that you want to uh, make a part of your daily life I like that mindful of the positive outcomes. That's a that's a great way of framing framing like the mental side of it. Uh, Shane, along with fitness, one of the other common goals for folks is to eat better. Uh, you and I, in fact, have a common goal: more fruits and vegetables in our diet. I think I think you and I both have a little bit of a salty tooth when it comes to the snacks. So in in my case, the approach that I've brought to the table here is I'm trying to buy more canned and frozen fruits and veggies. For two reasons, it eliminates it eliminates food waste, which is something that I've noticed a lot with fresh fruit and veggies in my life. They tend to turn pretty quickly if you don't get eating them quickly. Yeah. The other thing is, is they can be quite easy to do preparation-wise. How are you approaching habits when it comes to fruits and veggies? 
Yeah, I think that's a great thing. I think many of us are are wanting to increase our, our better healthy eating and have some more fruits and vegetables as part of our life. And I think when we're looking at trying to do that, this is a big challenge for me. My fiance would would you know would support me in saying that getting my fruits and vegetables, um, especially the vegetables, are are a challenge at the best of times. And so um, when I started thinking about this, I really took it took it back to the basics and, and just as you did. So when I was going to get ready for my shopping, I made a quick list. And one of the things that I did is I really love spinach. I love Caesar salad. I love green, green and red peppers. Mm. Um, I love blueberries. And so I just added those to my grocery list and, and purchased those items because if we really want to get into eating fruits and vegetables and we're buying things that we don't enjoy, then we're not going to be able to follow through with that. And, um, and one of the grocery stores that I go to have these really amazing organic blue berries and i've been using them as a <laughs> as a snack with some greek yogurt that has really quite satisfying and it's it's uh difficult to, to believe that it's even really healthy for you so i think just taking a look at the planning and the things that we enjoy and keeping them accessible put your fruits and vegetables on the on the counters and maybe hide your you know your nacho chips and your uh <laughs> you know your other unhealthy snacks in the cupboard kind of thing and bring them out as a treat on the weekend I'm feeling very seen right now, Shane. I'm feeling very seen right now as there's a, big, <laughs> there's a big can of Pringles sitting on my kitchen counter right now. Uh, so that one, that one will tempt you and draw you in. You know, Shane, I, I like what you mentioned there about, about sort of making things easy for you, as easy as possible with something like a habit. Uh, that's one of the reasons when I am still buying some fresh veg, I love things like the baby cucumbers, right? Just the little cucumbers, you pull them right out of the package, you wash them and you eat them like a chocolate bar. It's so easy it's so simple those never go to waste keep them on the top shelf of the fridge give them a quick rinse and munch down one or two of those boom a serving of veggies right there love it love it and i think those are the types of things that will really help us achieve our goals um you know having those those delicious um, vegetables that we enjoy and, and keeping them accessible and and making sure that when we are ordering our groceries that we pick the ones that we like Shane, unfortunately, I've mismanaged the clock a little bit, but I do want to ask you about sort of general health, uh, healthy lifestyle habits. I'm going to make a real effort here to get into the sauna once a week and schedule it after my Sunday morning workout. Every Sunday morning, into the weight room, into the sauna. The flip-flops, the bathing suit, everything's coming down with me to the gym, so there's no going back upstairs and changing my clothes and doing this this or that or seeing my bed and thinking it's comfy. <laughs> All the stuff's coming down with me right to the gym. Like, even though the gym's in my building, I'm bringing a gym bag with stuff downstairs <laughs> and preheating the sauna. So, like, that's, that's going to be the way that I establish the habit. I want a sauna more, and I'm going to make sure I bring the tools with me to do it. What about you, general lifestyle habits? Yeah, one of the things that I want to keep, you know, for me, meditation is a big part of my life. I believe that it's really important, um, you know, doing different breathing exercises. I deal with, um, you know, mental health, um, anxiety and depression disorders. And so I've found that putting meditation as a part of my life um, is really helpful. Unfortunately, I haven't been the greatest at sustaining that. But this year, I'm confident and hopeful that I will continue to 
to make meditation and breath work a part of my life. And so since since things have started since the new year, I've been actually doing this um, this non-sleep deep relaxation um, exercise that really helps ground me. And I've been really noticing it as an effective tool to help bring myself back down to baseline and and just be able to clear my head and ground myself. And so that's definitely going to be something that's on the top of my priority list list as a as a as another tool to keep myself healthy and well for this year. Shane, you're the best. Always great talking to you. Have a lovely weekend out there on Vancouver Island. Same to you, Dave. Have a great day. Oh, I wish I was spending my weekend on Vancouver Island. That's Shane Baker, a mental health and wellness advocate. Let's bring in Laura Bain for the Entertainment Report. Laura, one of my favorite bands broke up again. Rage Against the Machine seems to have called it quits again. Uh, Drummer Brad Wilk recently released a statement saying that the band will not be touring or playing live again. Uh, So that seems a little bit kind of uh, final there. So this is following uh, cancellation of a lot of their uh, reunion tour dates that was supposed to originally happen in 2020. Of course, then there was a pandemic. And then the lead singer, uh, Zach De La Roca, severed his left Achilles tendon. So they had to cancel a bunch of dates. Yeah, really terrible injury. But um, there was some hints of tension when the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year. The guitarist Tom Morello was the only member to attend but also bassist Tom uh, Tim Comerford revealed that he has been living with prostate cancer. So it's kind of, there's not a ton of information as to whether it is due to like creative differences within the band or due to health concerns. Uh, this isn't their first time breaking up. They broke up in 2000, got back together in 2007, went on hiatus in 2011. So it's sort of like their third uh, breakup. Uh, But I know you have some (laughs) thoughts on this, and I'm wondering if you're feeling disappointed that you won't get a chance to see them live, perhaps, if this is for Keith. I, I've I've never seen them live, Laura, and and I've loved this band since since I first heard them in the 1990s. I, I think they're just a phenomenally talented musical band. You know, it's not for everybody. It's pretty aggr- it's a pretty aggressive sound, but it's but it's it's really musical and really amazing. And I think if I was to like utterly um, show off how bummed I am, Tom Morello, their lead guitarist, in my opinion is maybe the best guitarist of the last 40 years, but certainly the most creative guitarist of the last 40 years. The way that he's used technology to get sound out of the instrument, I just think that he's such a brilliant guy, and it's not just the work that he did with Rage Against the Machine. He was also in the supergroup Audio Slave, where he did some just amazing guitar work there. So, Laura, I'm super bummed that I haven't taken the opportunity and I didn't get the opportunity to see this band, and I think it's a reminder that in life, when you have opportunities and you can afford it going and getting these experiences is so worthwhile because you never know when that's going to be yanked away from you yeah absolutely especially being where you are in central canada i mean i I feel like it's a little bit different out here on the east coast there was no (laughs) chance that they were coming here i was a i was a huge rage against the machine fan in like the late 90s early 2000s but honestly i haven't really thought about them much in the last 20 years um so i definitely would have seen them if i had had the opportunity but i also feel like they're just a band that's like opera operated with a lot of integrity so i have to assume that if they're making this choice it is what's best for them um now before they canceled their tour their dates the the tours they did do in those cities they made massive charitable donations to reproductive rights organizations so if i feel anything i would say i feel disappointed that whatever like good work they would have done during this tour has come to a stop but 
You know, Laura, I'm going to say goodbye to you in a second here, but there's a meme that floats around the internet about Rage Against the Machine that reads, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, it's never clear what machine they were raging against, but odds are it was a printer. Whatever it was, it resonated with my 17-year-old self. I can really say that. Uh, Laura, you're the best. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Ontario finally released a report on the state of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. Spoiler alert, it was not good. Elizabeth Moeller and Marco Pasquale will share their takeaways from the fourth review of the AODA. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Here's something that surprises no one. Ontario is struggling to meet accessibility targets set nearly 20 years ago. What's truly surprising is how much the province is struggling. Rich Donovan put together a report on the state of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. He gave it to the government earlier in 2023, and the government released it right before the holidays. The bottom line, Donovan feels the government should declare a crisis. He also suggested sweeping changes in monitoring progress of the AODA. Let's get some perspective. Elizabeth Moeller is the founder of VM Disability Consulting. Marco Pasqua is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Elizabeth, hello to you again. Hello to you again, Dave. And Marco, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Marco, you get the first crack at this. You brought the story sure. uh, to our attention over the holidays. What's your takeaway from this fourth review of the AODA? Yeah, so Dave, I mean, as you say, uh, it's the fourth review. So this has been vetted several times. Donovan actually points out that the Ont Ontario was actually required to monitor the compliance of over 400,000 organizations through this. And in his interim report, he found that they only hired around 20 to 25 staff to handle this, uh, which is leading to minimal on-site uh, audits. Uh, CBC did a great follow-up report on this. Um, now, they require, the ministry requires a lot of self-certification and the honor system for a lot of small businesses, which I'm sure you can understand why that would be an issue when it comes to non-compliance. And actually, Donovan uh, recommends that we move all of the uh, sort of accessibility regulation things to the, of the private sector to the federal government, which I kind of agree from a perspective of unification of the standards and kind of going across the board uh, mm. in our country with the Accessible Canada Act, because my concern as a British Columbian is if we can't learn from these uh, reports for the AODA, how the heck are we supposed to implement this uh, accessibility standards across the country, even though the Accessible Act currently only touches on federal regulated organizations and entities right now, we are eventually going to have to prepare for other organizations and businesses across our country to be ready for being accessible for everybody. And so I really think that, you know, this underscoring of Rich Donovan's report um, is not an overstatement, in my opinion. 
Elizabeth, I share a similar thought with Marco here that you've heard from a lot of uh, organizations and governments as they move forward with either their provincial disability legislation or the Accessible Canada Act, how they used the AODA as a bit of a framework. And I, this is really discouraging to me that 20 years later, what was proposed as the framework is utterly failing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the timeline. So even just simple things like, you know, here in Toronto, a number of our transit stations are still not accessible, or the fact that in 2022, the education standard and the health standard, those regulations were submitted to the ministry by the standards development committees, and they're still not implemented uh, over, you know, over a year later. That That's a huge sort of failing on, on that part and a, and a really big problem. Uh, you know, I think the other, and Marco pointed out the numbers, right, like 20 to 25 people to monitor 400,000 businesses. But the other thing that, that I would like to see is more, um, you know, proactive education enforcement. The uh, Accessible Campus has done a really great job through the Council of Ontario Universities of actually putting together resources, toolkits, um, tip sheets, education for post-secondary education uh, institutions mm -hmm. whose whose um, you know where the standards fall under them to to help them so that they can be compliant and that they are so that they are following those standards. But I'd like to see more sectors um, taking that up. I think that's a really big piece. It's important so we don't have to define or um, you know break those mm. break those. Marco, like I said, it's, it's certainly discouraging to read this report, especially in a sense when Donovan is putting forth ideas of radically changing the framework, the way it's monitored, mm. the way it's reported, the way it's executed. So that's obviously yeah. discouraging 20 years in. But as I flip that coin on myself, I would prefer they get it right. Like even if it means changing course and delaying and delaying reaching of goals, it's better to get it right than say we're working inside a broken framework just to hit a timeline that they're not going to hit anyway. Well, exactly. And you know, when people visit the United States, they're always talking about the um, Americans with Disabilities Act. And I mean, that was implemented in the 90s. Now I can tell you there's glaring gaps when you go there in 2023, 2024, uh, into the States, I should say, you know, to see where we can make these changes and these fixes. And this is our opportunity as Canadians to do exactly that, Dave. What you're saying is, let's get this right, right out the gate. Let's make sure that businesses understand. And if we want to tr create true allies in the situation, it's not just to slap them on the, the wrist with compliance without them understanding the reasons why. There is a real return to businesses' bottom line if they actually make their businesses more accessible. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth, I want to give you an opportunity to express a little bit of optimism as well here, because certainly the easy reaction is like, this is horrible, and I don't want to talk about it or think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I would say just to, to touch on the proactivity is, you know, the, these timelines are great 2025 or 2040 for the Accessible Canada Act, but they're benchmarks and accessibility is a process. We're always going to be coming, you know, more accessible as technology changes, as infrastructure changes. Yep. So they're benchmarks, but knowing that, you know, accessibility is an ongoing effort and even those those timelines and targets um, are great benchmarks and they're great standards, but that we're always moving because accessibility is fluid. fluid. It's a, It's a process. Let's change tracks here. Via Rail Canada, they updated their website in December. It was a bit of a shock to me because I don't like change. <laughs> but in the end, I had a pretty good experience booking some holiday travel, and the travel went quite well. So uh, big flowers for Via Rail right now. Elizabeth, what strikes you about this update and general accessibility policies at Via? 
I'm actually excited. I'm optimistic. So I too booked. I had a really positive experience. I was able to pick my own seat. I was able to actually select um, that and then say that I was legally blind and required assistance. That was great that I didn't have to wait on hold for an hour to do that. So I really appreciated that. The infrastructure was really accessible in terms of just using a screen reader. Um, I also was on one of the new fleets. And one of the things that I really liked was the call button that I could call for an attendant. I have almost been left mm -hmm. in London because there was no one in my car oh, wow. and the doors don't open at every car at every uh, car so being able to call and and get someone's attention was great the washrooms were bigger um having braille so uh certainly too the other thing i liked was the announcements for for people that were hard of hearing or deaf they were they were um visual as well so i'm like i'm liking it i'm feeling optimistic and i'm feeling like our needs were actually taken into account when when via made these these sweeping changes Hey, Marco, I know the train situation is a little bit different out there on the West Coast because, you know, there's an ocean that's always getting in the way and Rocky Mountains are <laughs> yeah, always getting the... in the way. But what's your experience Pesky. been like with uh, with passenger train travel? Uh, to be quite honest, I actually haven't been on a passenger train yet, Dave, outside of, you know, uh, the SkyTrain in Vancouver. Uh, however, I know that our, our uh, colleague Grant Hardy a couple of years ago did a segment on uh, um, AMI this week. I think it was called Have Kane Will Travel. And he talked at that time, it was about six years ago, about the accessible train cars that were coming. Now, I have good news in that in September, I'm actually a keynote speaker in New Brunswick. And so I'll probably be taking the train at that time. Oh, cool. um, so I'll be able to give you an update cool. as well as in the summer i'm going to switzerland where my wife's uh, family is all from and lives currently and so i'll be taking train travel there as well now going through europe on train and and checking the accessibility is going to be a really interesting adventure for me but i'm optimistic uh because of all the things that i've seen and i did hear that years ago via rail was implementing a lot more accessibility when it comes to the actual um you know uh train cars themselves yeah um, you know if you if you plan in advance that is and you make sure that you're in the right space and the right place so that's really cool yeah you know it's 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 not like you know there's no such thing as 100 a plus across the board but elizabeth i know sure. via rail was very intentional about yes. disability consultation on the front yeah. end of developing these cars and they deserve a lot of credit for that no, absolutely. And you can you can tell because the things just make sense. Sometimes accessibility, um, you know, you can tell that it was put in place sort of afterwards and you're, and you're thinking this doesn't make sense. Like, why is there Braille on drive through ATMs? But this you can really tell that <laughs> this was done in a very thoughtful, meaningful way. All right. One last story to get to here. And this one comes from my own meandering personal experience. I bought some new bedroom furniture over the holidays because I am an adult and uh, I was sleeping on the floor like a frat boy. So I initially tried to do some of it online. I couldn't do it, though. I had to go to the store and actually touch things. What's the point of buying a dresser or a bureau if you don't know how slidey the drawers are? So how am I supposed to buy something if I haven't at least slid them back and forth and touched them? Maybe I'm weird, but it also begs this question. Marco, in the modern retail landscape where so many things are moving online, what's something that you just can't buy online? Well, so, I mean, three things. Uh, you heard me talk about accessible clothing a couple of segments ago. Clothing, I still think, even though you can buy it online, it does. you don't know if it's going to fit right unless you try it on in-store or at least try and make sure it's the right fit for you. The next one would be mattresses because if you're going to spend that kind of money, you want to make sure that it feels good before it enters uh, your home. And then the last one that I've learned in the last couple of months is refrigerators. Um, they're not all created mm. equal. And uh, the height and the depth is a 
a real challenge because those change and fluctuate depending on the model. So you have to really check your cutouts and make sure from an accessibility perspective, you don't want something that's so deep that it's actually going to impede your space in your kitchen. So just a, a heads up to everybody, you want to <laughs> check your fridges out in person. <laughs> So this prompted the daily poll. So Elizabeth and I already kind of batted this back and forth in the first hour of the show. But Elizabeth, I did reveal and tell on myself about the walk-in contradiction that I am. Because even though I went to the store and had to touch the bureau, I still went home and bought it online. So even even my premise oh. I can quibble with on my on my own front end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say workout equipment for me as well. Like a trampoline, I gotta know how bouncy it is. I wanna bounce a treadmill, I wanna try it. And then I would also say kind of along your vein of furniture, waterbeds. When I upgrade my waterbed, I always wanna go and test it at the waterbed world and just see how much, you know, waviness there is. You can't measure waves online. Wow. You just can't. <laughs> I, I, I really feel like we should go visit Elizabeth's apartment, waterbeds and trampolines. Yes. Like this sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds Anytime, like we're actually babe. in Tom Hanks' big movie, exactly, <laughs> yeah. right? Anytime, anytime. <laughs> Childhood heart through and through. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you for this. Thank you for pinch hitting as a co-host today as well. Have a lovely weekend. No problem, Dave. You as well, Dave. And Marco, all the best to you. Enjoy a weekend out there in British Columbia. Thank you so much, sir. That's Marco Pasqua. He's the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Elizabeth Moeller is the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of Kelly and Ramya. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Ramya, what's coming up on the show today? And also, like, waterbed at Elizabeth's house. Sounds like a party, eh? <laughs> I know. You know, she's been teasing about this waterbed to me for years, but <laughs> you'll know invite. Or maybe she's invited, but she's really far. <laughs> I, I didn't know they were still making waterbeds, you know? I thought I thought that was, like, That's maybe a, a product of the point. 80s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, point. Ramya, what's coming up on the show today? We all got too caught up in, like, electric blankets and forgot about the waterbed. Oh, okay, no. so, <laughs> so today on the show, we're talking about, because it's Friday, we have the app update, the chatty bookshelf, all the other staples. Uh, we're talking about Microsoft Copilot, what this feature is and what it's doing for iPhone and iPad users, because it is a free um, feature now. And we're talking about that with John Beeler on the app update. Also talking about the Professional Women's Hockey League setting uh, a record. Um in its first week, Brock Richardson is going to tell us what the record is on our sports update. And the internet launched its first AI-generated bookstore. So, Ooh. of course, this is going to be picked up on the chatty bookshelf with Ryan Huey. Anytime oh. you mention AI, he gets a little upset. Oh, so we'll ooh, okay. Yeah. Fired up Ryan Huey on a Friday. I <laughs> love it. Yeah, exactly. Ramya, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend. Maybe I'll see you in the office this afternoon. Maybe not. I might try to get out of here a little early today. All righty. Well, enjoy your weekend if I don't see you. Telling on myself a little bit. Dave Brown, leaving early. I also showed up a little bit late today. I hit the snooze alarm like five times this morning. Well, half day Friday for Dave Brown. That's how things are going to roll. Kelly and Rumya hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up next, AMI has a whole range of new programming for the winter season. Greg David has all the details. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You should uh, see my email inbox right now, as well as my Teams chat and my cell phone. All the brass, all the bosses at AMI have chimed in about how messy my hair is this morning and how I'm unshaven. They went as far as to call me unprofessional. But you, dear listener, love me just the way I am. But I will be getting a haircut this weekend. Maybe I'll shave, or maybe I'll regrow my Santa Claus beard that I had in 2018, and that will horrify everyone. It's a new year, and that means new programming on AMI-TV and AMI-plus. you got some return of fan favorites and some new stuff that's debuting. Let's catch up with Greg David to learn all about it. He's a communication specialist for AMI. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, and let me weigh in and say that your hair looks tousled, and I think that there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, national television host, unshaven and uh, tasseled hair going everywhere, sort of the <laughs> sort of the Albert Einstein look, if you will. <laughs> right, yeah, you know, right, the, the unkempt genius, the, you got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's me through and through. That's exactly how I'm described. Uh, someone who actually is a genius is Kevin Shaw, and he's back with season three of Mind Your Own Business, offering advice to entrepreneurs in the disability community on how to make their business thrive so what are some of who are some of the business owners who are going to be featured this season yeah i love this show and this season of mind your own business is heading to the east coast featuring businesses um from the the halifax and nova scotia area uh glass brothers construction incorporated uh the business owners are members of the deaf and hard of hearing community so they're looking for some help as well as friendly roads mobility service so think of caa but uh, owned by a member of the disability community, and he helps folks who are fellow members of the disability community when they have a breakdown with their cars in the East Coast. And also we've got Country Fields Beekeeping Supplies and Jenna's Nut-Free Dessertery. So a nice uh, wide range of uh, entrepreneurs and local businesses in the East Coast all looking for some help in the new season of Mind Your Own Business. Yeah, I really enjoy the way that show's laid out. I, I liked it right from the start, but it's certainly yep. evolved and grown over the years. How would you say it's evolved? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, you know, we work very closely with the production company, Apple Orchard Productions, to say, hey, listen, we'd like some tweaks here and there. And really what I'm impressed with in this season is the storytelling. You really get to know the entrepreneurs in this season of the show, and I think that that's really important when it comes to really caring about them and what's happening. It's like any television show. You don't really care what's happening until you get to know the characters. So that happens. And also the mentors are just offering great advice this season too. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Wednesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern. Eastern time on AMI-tv, or you can stream it on demand at amiplus.ca. Another friend of the show and doing excellent work across the network is Mary Mamaliti, back for season four of Dish with Mary, once again traveling all over the country alongside some of Canada's hottest chefs. So where did they send Mary this season, Greg? Yeah, this is great. And, and here's another show that's evolved. When the first season of Dish with Mary kicked off, uh, we were in the middle of a pandemic, and so therefore it was all remote. And now in this new season of the show, Mary's able to travel once again, and so uh, or travel for uh, you know the, the this new season. So she's headed out to uh, Kamloops, BC. She also spends a couple of episodes in Montreal. Uh, Dave, you and I both know about mm -hmm. how deep the food, uh, the food culture is there in that great city, and uh, also heads to St. John, New Brunswick. Uh, so yeah, lots of uh, globe trotting or country hopping for Mary <laughs> in this season of the show. Of course, the show features awesome food, and I also really enjoy the way some of uh, those foods are featured on AMI social media channels, where you get little yep. recipes or little glimpses of what Mary's doing in the kitchen. But something that really makes the show thrive, that maybe almost has a little bit of that Anthony Bourdain no reservations feel 
is the yeah. way that she converses with other great chefs and talks about their story. Yeah, that's my favorite part. I mean, I'm a foodie and I love to make the the food the the recipes. And like you said, the recipes are all available post episode on our website. But yeah, she is a really good natural interviewer and really gets in depth into in depth conversations with the chefs. Not only why did they get into it because there are some really compelling stories, but also kind of the ups and downs of of being a chef and 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 trying to make a name for yourself in this country. So really fascinating conversations alongside all the great food on Dish with Mary. New season debuts Thursdays, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, AMI-TV, and of course, AMIplus.ca. Greg, there's another show that's making some waves here, and this is a new series. Comedian DJ Demers has a partnership with AMI and CBC for a brand new sitcom called One More Time. Already seen a couple of drops of this one all over uh, the interwebs as well. So, uh, Greg, what can you say about DJ's sitcom uh, in terms of what viewers can expect when they tune in? Yeah, so this is really interesting. DJ uh, plays a character named DJ, and uh, he runs a, a sports store, a used sports store. So it's all about the people that come in and out of that sports store every day, but it's also the staff that are, uh, that are part of the, the cast as well. So um, think a little bit Kim's Convenience, although on Kim's Convenience, you would actually leave the convenience store and, and go to apartments and things like that. That's not happening in one more time. You're sticking within the store the entire time, uh, and that's where the laughs are. So you know, DJ, if you haven't seen him before, he's actually doing a stand-up act uh, this weekend in Toronto. Um, he's just great. Uh, he's a member of the deaf and hard of hearing community, and uh, he's the co-creator of One More Time. And so we're really, really proud to be partnering with CBC on this show. Uh, we're production partners to a certain extent, so we've had some say in the scripts and in the integrated described video as also, and, and the described video as well. And I know, you know, I hope I'm not stealing anybody's thunder, but I know that there's going to be an interview with DJ that's going to be on now yep. with Dave Brown next yep. week with Alex Smythe. That's right. So really excited for people to get to know a little bit more about DJ and also check out one more time. Yeah, you mentioned the comedy shows that DJ is doing in Toronto. Our very own Bruce McLarian tried to go last night and the show was sold out. So uh, DJ, ah. DJ, DJ's moving tickets and doing well. So uh, good for DJ. Uh, Greg, I want to drill into this idea of a workplace comedy because there's something about that formula that just works. The Office, Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yep. There's just something about setting a comedy in a workplace that connects with people. Yeah, it really does. And it's interesting because, you know, you don't have to work in an office space like the office or work in a convenience store like Kim's Convenience or, or anything like that to relate to that. It's just fun to go to those worlds. And, and those worlds are so ripe for that interaction. I guess that's what it is. When you have so many people, you know, coming and going in an environment like that, it just makes for great laughs and, and a natural setting for a sitcom. Greg, only about three minutes left here, but we should make some time to talk about Push because yeah. season one is hitting the airwaves on AMI next week. It's an unscripted series that follows a group of friends who are all wheelchair users. What are some of the storylines that are explored in this series? Yeah, so this comes from Bean Gill, who's uh, starred on on some AMI TV programs before. She's also was also in a season of You Can't Ask That, and she's a wheelchair user based out of Edmonton, Alberta. And it really is based around her. It's her idea. It's about this group of wheelie peeps, wheelchair users in the area that she's befriended. And so it really gets into the nitty gritty about not only her story but the stories of everybody else. You know, everybody comes from from a different background, and they all have different stories into while they're why they are wheelchair users. 
but it's also about that friendship, right? Whether you're a wheelchair user or not, you can identify with those, uh, you know, the friendships and the conversations. Uh, there are friends of beans who are trying to have a baby. So they explore that. Uh, there's people talking about burgeoning relationships that they're into for the very first time into the, for the very first time. But the bulk of the first episode, like you said, kicking off next week or, uh, you know, later this month, uh, really delves into beans story and, and what happened to her, uh, that caused her to be in a wheelchair and, uh, and the ups and downs of that and, uh, and talking about the day, you know, the anniversary of the day that she became a wheelchair user and how tough that is. Mm. So it's a really unvarnished look at life. Uh, it, there are funny moments. There are some really serious and some sad moments as well, like all good unscripted series. Greg, I need to backtrack here because I did a very poor job of broadcasting and mentioning something about the DJ Demare show. One more time debuts next Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Got to do that or else the bosses are mad about my hair, be mad about my broadcasting <laughs> as well. Uh, Greg, of course, uh, Push is going to make its debut Monday, January 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. It almost feels weird to ask this question before season one has even hit the airwaves, but what's the deal with season two? Yeah, so we're really pleased that season two is going to be coming soon on, on AMI-TV and AMI+. Plus. Uh, I have not seen any new episodes of that. I do understand it's a bit of an extension and a catch-up with the folks from the first season. I understand there might have been a relationship breakup or two in between ooh, season one ooh. and season two. So I'll check back with you in the coming weeks to let you know about the new season coming later this spring on AMI-TV and AMI+. Plus. That's the thing about these unscripted shows that are real. Uh, occasionally, real stuff happens. <laughs> Yep, absolutely. <laughs> hey, Greg, thank you for this. Great to start off uh, 2024 chatting to you. Looking forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Dave. All right, just want to remind you again for Push debuting Monday, January 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. And got to give DJ his love as well. I really messed that up as a broadcaster. One more time debuting next Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. And I'll remind you, amiplus.ca is a great spot to get AMI content on demand. Really cool interface, great website, amiplus.ca. You got to spell out plus, though, P-L-U-S. You know that you can't use the plus sign in a web address? I, I learned that recently. And I, I, you know, 40 years old, still learning things. We continue to be a sponge wherever you can. That's Greg David, communications specialist for AMI, talking to you from beautiful Chelsea, Quebec. Ottawa region, but the Quebec side of the river, good stuff. That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Until Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Remember, you got to shave and cut your hair, Dave, if you want to keep this job. Wrap up Friday's show by saying thank you to the people who put it together. Let's roll those credits, gang. Dave Brown, co-host producer Alex Smythe, sports reporter Brock Richardson, entertainment reporter Laura Bain, contributors Ramia Mutin, Nisreen Abdel-Majid, senior show producer Andrika Delanero, visual producer Bruce Baclarian, producers Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion-Jones, Bob Pagrak, production assistant Kingsley Juco, DB producer Mark Phoenix, director Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse, control room operators Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson, Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave, Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper, Manager of Live Productions, Paula Deneen, Director of Content Development, Kara Nye, 
Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback. 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024. Accessible Media, Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.